As we are continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew, we are in Matthew chapter 13. We're going to be looking at verses 24 through 58. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll cost. We'll bring one right to your seat to follow along with us. Oh, and right, oh, Greg, and Greg too. I think all this stuff is in the way, so. Well, Koss has got the Pakistani Bible. Um, Greg has got the English Bible. <laughs> no, no takers, I don't know. What's up with that? <laughs> all right. <laughs> Matthew chapter 13, we're going to be looking at verses 24 through 58. The title of my message this morning is Kingdom Parables. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, Lord. We thank you for your word. And Lord, your Holy Spirit, thank you for working through uh, your word to, to show us all things, Lord. To show us areas in our lives that we need to work on, Lord. To encourage us, to give us wisdom, instruction, we praise you for this time. We thank you for uh, just this facility, this building, Lord, you've given us to meet in. We pray for the children downstairs as they're being taught your word as well, that their hearts should be open to receive all you have for them as the same for us this morning. Father, we do pray if there's anyone that has joined us that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you. They're not born again yet. We pray, Lord, that you'd touch their heart this morning and they'd come to know you as Lord and as Savior. We thank you for this time. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oliver Wendell Holmes, Sr., he was a doctor. And such, he was very interested in the use of ether. And uh, in order to know how his patients felt under its, under its influence, he once had a dose administered to himself. And he's going under, he's in this dreamy state, and, and a profound thought came to him. He believed that he suddenly grasped the key to all the mysteries of the universe. When he regained consciousness, however, he was unable to remember what exactly that it was. Now, because of the importance of this great thought and how it would be to mankind, Holmes thought that, man, I gotta, I gotta go under ether again. This time he had a stenographer there present to take down this great thought. And the ether was ministered, and sure enough, just before passing out, the insight reappeared, and he mumbled the words, and the sonographer took them down, and he went to sleep confident in the knowledge that he had succeeded. <clears throat> Upon awakening, he turned eagerly to the sonographer and asked her to reread him what he said was the key to all the mysteries of the universe. And this is what she said. The mystery of the entire universe is permeated with a strong odor of turpentine. <laughs> that was it. That was it. That's what he came to know. Well, here in Matthew 13, Jesus gives to us a series of illustrations, parables, that he refers to as the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Of course, the difference between Mr. Holmes and Jesus is Jesus actually explains to us, gives us the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. In fact, he said to his disciples back in verse 11 of Matthew 13, he says, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not been given. See, the context of this word mystery here is that it was something not revealed in the Old Testament, but is now revealed in the New Testament. Keep in mind that, that the Old Testament pictured the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, coming to this earth on one climatic day, one climatic moment. They thought that the world was going to change overnight. And one day God would right all the wrongs, he would wipe out all 
you know, of the wicked, eradicate all evil, erect a kingdom to rule heaven and earth, and will usher in peace and righteousness. One colossal, breathtaking, dynamic day, Messiah would break upon this earth, and all the Jewish hopes and dreams would be fulfilled and realized. And the Jews believed that God's kingdom and their Messiah would come and do that in one single day. Now, if you read the book of Revelation, you realize much will be accomplished in a single day. When Jesus returns a second time, he will turn the world on its ear. The kingdoms will end and God's kingdom will begin. And Jesus, yes, Jesus will establish an earthly throne and a visible kingdom. And all mankind will acknowledge Jesus as Lord and every knee will bow, every tongue will confess and worship. That will happen in a single day. But the mystery is this wasn't going to happen when Jesus came the first time. For Matthew 13 teaches that before God's kingdom comes visibly, forcibly, physically, tangibly, politically, militarily, it first had to come spiritually. And that the Jews knew that God's kingdom would come in a day, but Jesus taught that they would, they would, the day would be in the, the kingdom's climax, not its beginning. You see, the kingdom will descend, but today it's rising. Jesus planted the seeds of the kingdom at his first coming, and for the last 2,000 years, it's been growing subtly, gradually, invisibly, and spiritually. And so he said to them in verse 12 here, For whoever has to him will be given, and he, have, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. In other words, God has revealed to us, his church, his believers, the, the truth that we can grasp. Non-believers, they're not going to get this. And so that's why in, uh, in Matthew 13, he has given us a series of parables to show us what the spiritual condition of the world is going to be like leading up to the return of Jesus Christ and the final judgment when he does separate the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares, and the truth from the counterfeit. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Last week we looked at the, the parable of the sower. This morning we're going to finish up the parables and we're going to look at three things. Number one, if you're taking note, the counterfeits. Number two, compromise. And number three, corruption. We pick it up in verse 24 with point number one, counterfeits. Look at verse 24. And another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us to then go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in the bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Jesus is using this illustration to point out there is the real seated next to the unreal. There is the genuine next to the imitation. There is the committed next to the uncommitted. Now, why is that? Well, because we know that we have an enemy who is an expert at at counterfeiting. He's an expert at at, uh, deception, and he's been doing it for years. Satan, you see, has clear patterns that he moves in. He has techniques that he uses over and over and over again. I guess the old adage stands true for him. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. I think it's it's helpful for us to understand that his strategies really haven't changed. We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, that we're not ignorant of his devices. That is, we're not ignorant of, of his, his strategies, his devices. We can understand the way our enemy thinks. We can properly defend ourselves against him then. 
And here in these parables, we're given a great insight into those strategies that the devil uses with great effect in our lives. Again, Satan is a great imitator. He has a counterfeit version of just about everything that is true. We know he has counterfeit Christians. Paul talked about that in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty six. He says, I have faced danger in cities, in the deserts, and on the stormy seas, and I face danger for men who claim to be Christians but are not. Satan has a counterfeit gospel. Paul says in Galatians 1, 8, but if even we are an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached, let him be accursed. I share this on Wednesday night. If an angel sits on the foot of your bed and contradicts the gospel, let him be accursed. Let you be really freaked out, but let him be accursed. But you see, not only does Satan have counterfeit Christians and a counterfeit gospel, he even has a counterfeit Christ. In the last days, when the Antichrist emerges on the scene for all practical purposes, he is the devil's answer to the true Messiah. Because that prefix anti could also be translated instead of. Not, not against, but instead of. So when, the, when he comes on the scene, many people who are ignorant of what the Bible teaches will think that the Antichrist is actually the very Messiah of Israel. And he's going to help the Jews rebuild their temple. He's going to bring this pseudo-peace into the world for three and a half years. And then all is going to be revealed who he really is and the Lord will destroy him at the brightness of his coming. Well, how does all this play out in this first parable that we just read about the wheat and the tares? Well, drop on down to verse 36 through 43, and we'll get Jesus' explanation of this parable. First with verse 36, we read, Then Jesus sent the multitudes away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. <laughs> I like that. The disciples, they didn't get it. I mean, all these people around, they're gathered, and, and, and he's doing this, this uh, parable of, the, of the, the tares in the field, and they're probably shaking their heads. Yeah, 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 we get it. We, we understand the mysteries. You've given us the mysteries. We understand that. Then they come back inside. Okay, Jesus, we don't get it. <laughs> okay, uh, what does that mean? You know, uh, and, and could you explain it to us? And so he does. Look at verses 37 through 43. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be welling and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the Son in the kingdom of the Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's interesting that this word for tares in the Greek is the word zizaniah, and, and it's believed that it refers to what's called a bearded darnel. The bearded darnel is a plant that looks remarkably identical to wheat. When it first begins to grow, you really can't tell a difference. Here's a picture of them side by side I have up there. Very, very close. It's been said that in, in large doses, the bearded darnel can actually kill a person if you ingest it. It's definitely not good for us. When people eat its seeds, they get dizzy, off balance, and, and nauseous. Now get this, in ancient times, it was the practice, if you hated somebody, that you would sow that bearded darnel in their wheat field because it's going to crowd out the wheat. You're not going to get as big as harvest because it's going to be filled with all those, those weeds, all those, 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 those weeds. And so that's why the Romans actually had laws against sowing weeds in fields like these. There were actually laws against it. 
Because at first you can't tell the difference. You can't tell them apart. They're indistinguishable. But once that plant begins to grow, then it starts making a difference. So it's pretty clear what Jesus is saying here. Verse 38, he says, The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. That makes the, the tares, the weeds, the children of the devil. See, God is planting his seed in this world, and Satan has had his seed, his counterfeit, right along with it. And really, as the church began, it began with God's seed first. Eleven men in an upper room, and, and then 120 on the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 souls get saved after Peter preached, and it began to grow. But it wasn't too long after that that Satan tried to destroy it through 300 years of persecution. Ten Roman emperors ordered the systematic persecution of the churches. Christians were, were dipped in hot wax and set on fire. They were placed in boiling oil. They were skinned alive. They were crucified upside down. But you know what happened? The stronger the persecution, the, the, the greater the church grew. The church experienced persecution and it began to, to spread throughout the whole world. Satan then realized, listen, I goofed uh, for 300 years. So what does he do? Well, he changes his tactics. If you can't beat him, join him. So in AD 313, with the Edict of Constantine, Christianity was adopted as a natural religion of Rome. Satan pretty much joined the church. Now you have the wheat and the tares, and the church has been suffering ever since. When the Roman Emperor Constantine had his supposed conversion, people thought, well, this is the greatest day in the history of the church. But I think it's questionable that Constantine was ever converted to begin with. Because it was supposed, it recorded that he had this supposed vision of a flaming cross and God saying to him, in this sign, conquer. And so with the tip of the sword, constantly sought to bring about conversion. Listen, that's certainly not of the Lord. That's not the way to bring people into God's kingdom. Your profession of faith or we're going to kill you. Yet constantly killed many true believers who refused to submit to, submit to his distorted uh, band of Christianity. And then we see, and look back in the history of the church, we see that the dark ages of the church happened when people tried then to uproot the tares and disobedience to what Jesus is saying here. During the Middle Ages of the Dark Ages, unbelievable brutality was committed against non-Christians, especially towards Muslims and, and Jews, in the name of the Prince of Peace. In fact, if you use the word crusade around a Muslim or a Jew, they, you know, they don't think very highly of that. It's a negative reaction. See, this was wrong. True Christianity was never meant to go out and conquer militarily in the name of the cross. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a place for self-defense, and there's a place for a nation to use its military force and, and law enforcement, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about getting the gospel out. Pastor Greg Laurie said many times, it's not, it's, that's not how it's to be done. It's not to be done with M16, but with John 316s. I like that. In fact, even during the uh, Inquisitions in reactions to the Protestant Reformation, thousands of Christians who did not uh, submit to the dogma and the authority of the Roman Catholic Church, they were imprisoned, tortured, and murdered. It's all wrong. The church was not to separate the wheat from the tares. We need to leave those things in the hand of God and let Him determine who the wheat are and who the tares are. The question we need to make sure for ourselves is, are we wheat are we living a godly life? Because Jesus is saying there are those who appear as though they're believers. You know, they go to church regularly. They, they carry a Bible. They may even tithe, but they've never really truly had a relationship with Jesus. 
They're a counterfeit. They're, they're bogus. They're tares. And Satan has planted them within the kingdom to deceive and cause confusion. And so there is the expansion of the kingdom. There's the opposition of the kingdom. A lot of good growth, a lot of bad growth, false growth. And, and right now, I mean, that's right now. But in the end, it's all going to be sorted out. Now, what does it mean for us? It's simple. This isn't the day of judgment. We're, we're not to be judging. This is the day of evangelism. Don't worry about the judgment. Worry about evangelism. Just sow the seed. You know, there are those out there that, that you know, they, they kind of go under the, the title of a hyper-Calvinist. And, and they'll say, well, if God knows who the wheats are, and He knows who the tares are, then you don't need to preach the gospel to everybody because there are some who are the elect and some who are not. You don't want to be preaching the gospel to someone who's not the elect. I like what Charles Spurgeon said, who I think is a balanced Calvinist. He said this, It would have been nice if the Lord would have put a big yellow stripe down on the back of every person He has elected to make it easy for us. But the bottom line is He hasn't done that. Only He can see the stripe. We can. He just tells us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. I do believe in election. I do believe in free choice. But seeing how I don't know who's elected are and, uh, and who's not, I will give people the opportunity to make that choice. If they choose wisely, they're elected. If they, if they don't, then they're not elected. But God's going to sort it all out in the end. Now is a time for evangelism. But there will come a time of judgment. And that's what Jesus is saying. And look at verse 40. As the tares are gathered and burnt in the fire, so will it be at the end of the, this age. The Son of Man will send out His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be welling and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Notice Jesus' depiction of hell. It's a literal, actual pain and torment and regret. Listen, hell is not a fairy tale or a figurative use of speech. Hell is a real place. And these are words from a loving Savior uh, that doesn't want anyone to go there. And that's why Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 13.5, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Do you... Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? Make sure you're, you're the wheat. Now this brings us to point number two, compromise. Back up now to verse 31 and 32 and we see the parable of the mustard seed. Verse 31. Another parable he put forth to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now really, the mustard tree is really an unlikely symbol of the church or of, really of individual Christians. Ordinary fruit-bearing trees were used to depict believers. Mustard, on the other hand, I mean, it's a condiment. You know, we use it on food. And it's not even, you know, it, it's, it's not wheat germ loaded with vitamins. It's just good on hot dogs and hamburgers. Mustard is not a food you can live on. And the mustard seed doesn't grow into this, you know, mighty oak like a little acorn does. It's a shrub that thrives best in the desert. I mean, if Jesus were teaching this parable today, he might say, you know, to us, the kingdom of heaven is like a carrot seed. It begins as tiny seed and turns into this tree so birds can nest in it. See, carrot seeds, they, they don't turn into a tree. There's no carrot tree. So Jesus is describing here an unnatural growth. 
So what's the point? Well, this little thing grew in an unnatural big thing. And, and what's it inhabited by? Well, he says here, it's inhabited by the birds in verse 32. Now, people think they have this all figured out with who the birds are. They say the birds are the world, and the world is taking shelter under the branches of the church. Eh, wrong interpretation. This is an unnatural growth of something that has turned into something that it shouldn't be. I mean, what, what in the parables, what are the birds always a symbol of? Evil. I mean, go back to the parable of the sower. The birds are a picture of the devil. And so what this is saying is that in the last days, there will be something that will call itself the church, and it will grow numerically, but it will be inhabited by a bunch of false believers. See, the parable reveals the outward growth of the organized church. And, and the church and the world have become, become horribly mixed. I mean, we see it today uh, like crazy. Listen, the church should be salt in the world, not mustard. <laughs> but you see, it all begins with compromise. That's Satan's plan. Drop your guard a little bit. It's no big deal. Reminds me of the story about a New York family that bought a ranch out west where they intended to raise cattle. When their friends visited the ranch, they asked them, if, what, what's the name of the ranch? Well, said the would-be cattleman, I wanted to name it the Bar J. Well, my wife wanted it to be called Susie Q. My, my son wanted the Flying W. And the other wanted a Lazy Y. So we worked out a compromise. We call it the Bar J, Susie Q, Flying W, Lazy Y. The friend asked, well, where's all your cattle? Well, he said, well, none survived the branding. <laughs> That's how compromise works. You don't survive. The devil is no fool. You know, he, he doesn't declare his entire strategy. He doesn't say, hello, I'm the devil. I'm going to destroy you. Let's get on with this. No, he says, if you want to be a Christian, that's okay. That's fine. But you, you have to be so fanatical about it. Can you lighten up just a little bit? Can you relax just a little bit? You have to be so, so legalistic. What's wrong with a drink here or there? You know, what's wrong with a little of this or a little of that? You, you can handle it. You know when to stop. You're strong. And you begin to make those strong, those, those rather small compromises that turn into big sins. Charles Spurgeon once said this, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has, been, has such, so much influence over the church. And we see that today. That's why personally we need to, to per, periodically have a spiritual checkup to see in our own lives, is there any areas of compromise going on? And we need to deal with it. We need to ask ourselves, is there anything that I'm doing, any relationship I'm involved in that is stealing my passion for Jesus, that's slowing me down in this race of life? We need to deal with it. And this brings us to our, our third point, corruption. And this brings us to the parable of the, of the leaven. Look at verse 33 to 35. Another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Then he goes on, all these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled in which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter these things kept secret from the foundation of the world. And we looked at that part last, last week. Now this parable, this would have been immediately understood by the Jews. Leaven is basically yeast, and the Bible is, in the Bible it's always a symbol of evil. You know, in the Old Testament, remember that Moses was instructed to tell the Israelites to get all the leaven out of their house before they celebrated Passover. Then we move into the New Testament, and Jesus warned us about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which specifically was, was, was hypocrisy. He warned us about the, the leaven of, of Herod. 
Paul, in writing to the church in Corinth, comments on how we were welcoming in a, in a moral, how they were welcoming an immoral person into their midst, and saying, "Oh, this is all good. Look how much we love them." But then he warned them about the corruption that leaven brings. He said this in First Corinthians five, six, and seven: "Your glorying is not good. Do not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump. Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you were truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us." Leaven, it's always a, a symbol of corruption and, and, and compromise and, and sin in the Bible. You know, and, and a little bit just, just goes a long way. I think of that I Love Lucy episode, you know, leaven is yeast, and she put the yeast in that bread dough, and, and the, the bread just kept coming out of the oven like 20 feet long or something like that. And that's what leaven does. So that's what the devil does. They'll try to take you down the road of compromise leading to corruption. Little leaven, leaven's a whole lump. I've always liked this story about a father who was listening to his children make their case for permission to watch a, a PG-13 movie that all their friends were going to go see. So they presented their case to their dad. They said, Dad, it, it, it has our favorite actor in it. Some of our friends from church are going to go see it. It's only rated PG-13, and that's because of just the suggestion of sex, but they never really show anything. And the language is pretty good, and the Lord's name is only spoken in vain three times throughout the whole movie. Besides, the special effects are amazing and the plot is full of action. Yeah, there's some violence, but it's normal stuff. It's not that bad. And the father listened to all this, but still his answer was no. Well, the children were not happy. Well, later that evening, the same father came into the room where the children were watching TV with a plate of homemade brownies. I mean, the children perked up and and eyed the dark chocolatey squares. Oh, this is going to be great. That is until the father explained that he had taken their favorite brownie recipe and just added one small ingredient, just a little bit of a dog poop. Now, now, he'd only added a tiny bit, measured it out very carefully, and, and baked it at just the right temperature to ensure that they would, they would still be moist and chewy just the way they liked them. Well, the kids, as you realize, they, they recoiled in disgust, and the father just acted surprised. I mean, he assured them that they probably wouldn't notice the, the dog poop at all. There was only just a little bit in the bowl of ingredients. He assured them that they wouldn't taste it, just, it would taste just fine. It really wouldn't harm them. Still, the children turned up their noses and refused to even touch the brownies. The father then explained that the movie they wanted to see was just like the dog poop brownies. Satan tries to enter our minds and our homes by deceiving us just into thinking, oh, just, just a little bit of evil doesn't matter. Just a little bit of the brownies, only a little bit of dog poop made the difference between something great and something totally unacceptable. From that point on, kids, they never asked to see another movie unacceptable. The father merely asked if they would like some brownies and they didn't ask anymore. And here's the point. The devil will try to take you down one way. And if that doesn't work, he'll, he'll, he'll try to join your ranks. If that doesn't work, he'll, he'll get you to compromise and just sow that corruption in your life. And the leaven begins to slowly spread in your life like poison. It corrupts your life. The evangelist Billy Sunday once said, one reason that sin flourishes is because it's treated like a cream puff instead of a rattlesnake. You know that leaven is mentioned 98 times throughout Scripture, and in every single case, it's linked with evil. But then you have the word bread in Scripture, and it speaks of the word of God. And so as believers, we're to stay away from, from the leaven, from evil things, things that would corrupt our lives, and said, partake of the bread of life, Jesus. Well, now we have the next two parables. They're the parables of the hidden treasures and the pearl of great price. First, the parable of the hidden treasure. Look at, drop down to verse 44. 
Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid, and for the joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, the common interpretation of this parable is that the sinner finds Christ, gives up all that he possesses to gain him, and he's saved. But I have a real problem with that. To begin with, Jesus Christ is not a hidden treasure. He's, he's known, he's the best well-known person throughout the whole world. He's not hidden. Secondly, the sinner does not seek God. Now, I know it may feel like, like from a human standpoint, but the Bible says there's none who seek after God, none who are righteous, no, not one. None who seek after God. All we like sheep have gone astray. So that doesn't fit. And then thirdly, salvation cannot be purchased. It's a free gift. It's not of works. You believe it. Uh, you believe it. He gives it to you. You don't earn it. And then fourthly, if we could purchase it, what do you have of any worth, of any value that you could sell to get it? All of our righteousness is this filthy rags. On the other hand, this is a perfect picture of Jesus Christ who came down from heaven, gave everything up. He sold all, so to speak, to buy the world to get the treasure. And that treasure is you and I. It's a picture of the Savior seeking the sinner, not the sinner seeking the Savior. Now that fits. It fits along with the lines of another parable when Jesus spoke about the man who had a hundred sheep and one sheep went away. Did Jesus say, oh, it's just one sheep. I got 99 others. I, I don't need those. No, he left the 99 to go get the one. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. That fits his parable. The field is the world. Jesus gave everything to redeem the whole world, to preserve a treasure in it, and that treasures you and me. Same thing for the next parable. The parable of the pearl of great price. Look at verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, Jesus is the buyer. We are the pearl. He sees us so valuable and precious that he would happily give all to have it forever. Now, here's something to think about this parable. Do you know that pearls were not valuable to Jewish people at that time? There's really no mention of pearls in the Old Testament. The, the Jewish people saw pearls more like, a, like we see coral in the ocean. Yeah, it's nice, but, but whatever. No value. It was, however, valuable to Gentile, non-Jews. I mean, that should be kind of a clue for us. Added to the fact that a pearl is, is a result of an injury. It's a result of an organism dealing with an irritation. Precious gems, you know, they, they're usually mined and they're polished rubies and diamonds and sapphires. Not a pearl. What happens with a pearl is a little piece of dirt works its way into the shell of an oyster and it irritates it. And that oyster responds by sending out uh, this produced serum called nacre, and, and it covers this little piece of sand with this layer of nacre, and then another secretion, and then more nacre, another secretion, another secretion, until this, this pearl is formed over a period of time. It's in response to the organism, to the irritation that got inside of it. I think that's beautiful. That's a beautiful picture of Gentiles, not Jews. We are not under the covenant. We've been grafted in. We're basically a piece of dirt covered in the righteousness of Christ. That's a pearl, a piece of dirt covered with something beautiful. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, clothed in his righteousness. The irritation of sin has been covered by the sinlessness and the perfection of Christ. I think that's a beautiful illustration. Next parable, we get the parable of the dragnet. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. The story is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. 
How many know the, the movie, the, the series Dragnet? Anybody? A few. The younger kids have no clue what I'm talking about. Joe Friday, please show anyway. Look at verse 47. That's not what this is talking about. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. Okay, the disciples certainly understood this parable. I mean, they were fishermen. Now, there were three types of fishing on the Sea of Galilee. Number one was the slowest kind. Now, it's just a, a line and a hook. You know, you catch one fish at a time. That might be, you know, the fast food, you know, thing, you know the, the slowest method. You know, you didn't, they didn't know much of that. You know, the, the only time you'd want to do that if you fish, you'd get something to eat right now. But then there's two other types of fishing. Number two was the individual personal net. That is where you take a net out from your boat. It's got a cord attached to it and some weights on it. You kind of fling it out and allow, you know, round circle. It goes down and kind of pull it in and, and you catch whatever fish is there. The third type is what's called the dragnet. Now that took a team. You usually had a couple boats and the net would then hang down in the water, weights at the bottom and floats on the top so that it's a moving wall. And as the boats encircled this area, they would drag it to shore. Now they would drag everything, good fish, bad fish, debris, plastic bottles. No, they didn't have plastic bottles back then, but if they did it now, you would. you get everything. So they'd have to pick out, you know, the garbage. You'd have to throw the bad fish away, keep the good fish, put them in the baskets, take them to the market. Now, I think this, this is, is pretty clear. You know, you look at a harvest crusade, let's say, by, by Greg Laurie. Uh, you know, you had hundreds of people, thousands of people coming forward. It would be ridiculous to think that, that every one of them coming forward is a Christian. Because some folks, they, they get on the bandwagon, oh, you know, uh, for, for the wrong reason, oh, it's cool, or i got to please my wife, or i got to impress my girlfriend, or my boss who invited me, or I like the music, or it just felt good at the time. But there's no real commitment. In the same way, when we throw out the net of the gospel, you're going to get different people imaginable coming forward, but only time is going to tell if they truly had a conversion. No, Jesus did say, by their fruit you will know them. So the idea is that even in the church, we're going to have genuine and artificial. The wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats, the converted and the unconverted, and it will all be determined in that final day who is who. The important thing, again, is for us to realize who we are personally. That you know where you stand for the Lord. See, I, I don't know where you stand. You know, I only know where I'm at. You know whether or not you're wheat or tear, if you're involved with leaven or compromise, or, or if you're in the Word. If you're that irritating piece of sand, or you're a pearl of great price. You see, if you realize today that you're truly the treasure in the field that He came to find, then you have said, Lord, redeem me. Lord, forgive me. Take the tears out of my life, the weeds out of my life. I want to be your child. You can have my life. And you've given God control over your life and there's going to be fruit that comes from that. Now to those that aren't, man, they're just posers. You know, I think I've shared this before. Growing up in Southern California, you'd go to the beach and you had the surfers and you had the posers. The posers are the ones that have the surfboard leaning against the wall and just kind of stood there but never surfed a day in their lives. And so that we have. And that's what we see here at verse 49. We read that, that those that are posters are going to be judged. He says, so will it be at the end of this age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be welling and gnashing of teeth. I want you to notice something as we make our way through the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus will speak more on judgment and more of hell than anyone else in the Bible. I mean, don't think 
that, that hell was invented by some crazed preacher, some angry fundamentalist. It's a biblical doctrine. What breaks my heart is to realize that every single day, according to worldometer.com, 147,000 people die on earth. One given day, that's how many people die. They enter into eternity. And we know not every one of them is a believer. God's dragged into slowly but steadily moving through every single day of history, moving towards the shores of judgment. Then one day God is going to deal with every single fish, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting torment. So now, laying all these parables out, Jesus says to them in verse 51, and I love this, Jesus said to them, Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. I'm going, Yeah, right. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, yeah, we got it. We got it. Have you understood what I said about the kingdom? Yep. Understood what I said about how people are precious to me? Yep. You understood the kingdom of God is going to grow, but there's going to be a lot of bad stuff that happens? Yep, we understand it. I don't think they really did. But they're saying they did. So Jesus then brings out one more parable. It's called the parable of the scribe. Look at verse 52. Then he said to them, Therefore every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasures things new and old. Jesus says, Okay, you understand these things and learn the parable of the scribe. You now have a responsibility. You see, the householder, the, the, the head of the household was responsible to provide for those in the house and, and usually had a room or storage where he would keep everything that was needed and distributed as was required. So the truth of God's kingdom, taught in the old and, and the new, the good, everything about, about heaven, the truth about hell, all of this is, is to be shared, to be given out so people can understand it. And so it is with us. You know, once we understand, we are responsible to share it in some form or fashion. Man, you can shoot off an email to a friend saying, man, I'm born again. I want to talk to you about Jesus Christ. You could, you know, have a conversation with a friend. You can make a phone call. You could, you know, write a letter. If people still do that, you know, how the Lord has changed your life. Now, that doesn't mean that they'll receive it. I mean, obviously, we just looked at all these parables and you saw the different reactions. You may not always be welcomed. In fact, you know, you, you share the gospel, usually you're not welcomed at home. And that's what we see next, finally, with Jesus going back to his hometown. Look at the last few verses, verse 53 to 56 first. It says in verse 53, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables, that he parted from there. When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his Mary mother called Mary, and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters. Are they not all with us? Where did this man get all these things? Now notice here, and we talked about this recently, that Jesus had at least four half-brothers and at least a couple sisters. Obviously, the Roman Catholic doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary is false. Mary had at least six other kids. Sounds like more like a perpetual fertility. He kept having more kids. But Jesus is teaching in his, own, in his hometown synagogue. And they're impressed. They go, man, we've never heard teaching like this before. We have not seen the works that he's doing. But they go, yeah, but who is he? We saw him growing up. We saw him as a kid. You know, you know, see, they were too proud to think that Jesus was something special. They just looked at, the, at him as a, a boy from the hood. You know, the old saying it rings true. Familiarity breeds contempt. And sadly, pride caused their unwillingness to believe. Matthew tells us in verse 57, So they were offended at him, but Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and is in his own house. 
Listen, the, 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 the husband who's loyal to his spouse, a wife who faithfully serves her family, the employee who minds his business and works hard, they, they all tend to get taken for granted. And, and, and we grow used to their presence. Maybe we forget what life would be like in their absence, but we need to be aware of that. But in the same way, oftentimes when we go out and we share our faith, we can do so with much success everywhere we go until we take it home. And then it's like, ah, uh, you know, I knew you. I, I saw you growing up. You know, I, I can't believe her. They refuse to believe. Jesus is what Jesus was limited by the townspeople' unbelief. In fact, look at verse fifty-eight. A sad verse. We close with this. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Psalm seventy-eight, verse forty-one says of Israel, they limited the Holy One of Israel. Unbelief. That's what hinders the work of God in our lives. God refuses to act where there's a lack of faith. Listen, as we close, the kingdom of God is not in hibernation. We're not just waiting for that that one day when Jesus splits the eastern sky. His spirit is at work right now in our lives. The kingdom doesn't come in just one day, but every day if you have faith. It's been given to us to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And we have that privilege to make it known to a lost world. That Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. He gave His life to give us life. The mystery of the universe has been solved. It's Jesus. It's all about Him. May God fill us with His Holy Spirit. Empower us to make a difference in His kingdom now. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. And I know we've covered a lot of, a lot of Your teachings, a lot of the parables this morning in one sitting. But Lord, your your purpose and your message is clear. There's going to be the true believers. There's going to be the false believers. And Lord, we don't always know where the two are, but we need to make sure that we are right with you, that we have a right relationship with you. And Father, we pray that you would empower us as your believers to go out and share our faith, regardless of the outcome, regardless of, of, of the way we're treated. Lord, that we would see people come to faith. We would not be discouraged, Lord, by the compromise in the church that we see, but that we would be encouraged, Lord, knowing that your soon return is here, that you're going to be here and you're going to judge the living and the dead, as your word says. We thank you for that. We thank you that our names are written in the book of life. And Father, I do pray, if there's anyone here who's not a Christian, Maybe they've been playing the game for a while and, and they're not really surrendered their hearts and life to you. They're not forgiven. They're just kind of coming to church but they're not really born again. Lord, would you especially touch their heart today? Oftentimes, Satan deceives us into thinking that we're fine. But Lord, a true believer is the one that recognizes what you've done for them upon the cross, dying for our sins, rising from the dead. One who's turned from their sin. So Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that has not done that, Lord, that they would not leave here without making that commitment to you. We thank you, Lord, for our salvation. We thank you, Lord, for calling us, choosing us, opening up our eyes to see you, our Lord, our Savior, our King. We await your physical kingdom upon this earth, Lord, with great anticipation. Use us, Lord, to increase your spiritual kingdom now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.